You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And welcome. You are locked on to the NBA. My name is Nick Angstead, filling in for David Locke. I'm the host of the Locked On Mavericks podcast. And joining me, the great Ben Golliver. Ben, I'm so glad uh, that we're doing this again. However, the last time we did this, the NBA canceled. So uh, maybe we should maybe we should try to stay away from each other. Well, Nick, are we the good luck charm? Are we turning this whole thing upside down? Because it does feel like we've got some fairly major, I would say, developments. Finally, some of the NBA's return to play timelines and, and plans starting to take form. You know, we've been talking about that on this podcast, David and I have, for the last couple of weeks. And it seemed like uh, Adam Silver was really trying to buy some time. And I think finally uh, this week, uh, maybe we're, we're starting to see something coming up on the horizon that actually could look like basketball. We're actually seeing some some news, some results, some potential uh, answers to all the questions that we've been asking that us that have been doing five-day-a-week podcasts have been asking almost every single day. Like Ben said, we're going to get into some of the, the reaction. We're going to react to some of the news that happened uh, from Shams, from Woj, different things about uh, an actual date when the NBA might start. We're getting around to when uh, the players will actually receive guidelines for what's going to happen when they come back, things like that, all sorts of stuff coming up. And there's feels like some real things are starting to come up instead of just speculation. And so uh, we're going to get into that. But before we do today's podcast, like most podcasts on the Locked On Podcast Network, is brought to you by Built Bar. Use the code Locked On to get $10 off your first purchase at BuiltBar.com. Um, so the news of the day, the NBA has Orlando and Disney World as a clear front runner to return to play uh, resuming this season, the 2019-2020 season. According to The Athletic, uh, Orlando has gained serious interest instead of uh, Las Vegas. It's kind of moved ahead of Las Vegas in the hierarchy. And then um, the other news is that is from ESPN, Adrian Wojnarowski. NBA teams are expecting the league office that will issue guidelines around June 1st that will allow franchises to start recalling players who have left their market as a first step and then uh, bring players back and to start working together. So, Ben, is this a real step in the right direction or is this just more of, well, maybe we have a plan, well, maybe we have something coming? Well, I think it's a, it's a logical uh, framework for what has kind of been building here gradually over the course of the last month or so, right? I think the real biggest takeaway for me is this idea that the NBA wants its return to happen in stages. And I think that's very important because, um, you know, as any of us try to wrap our minds around, you know, what is like getting back into an office environment going to be like or uh, how our city is going to be reopening – I think there's a real genuine fear factor across the the country, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, this idea that we're just supposed to return to normal, even while you know ninety thousand people uh, have died so far here in the United States, that's uh, you know a real barrier to getting back to normal. And so, I think what the NBA's plan, as as outlined by ESPN, uh, you know, puts forward is the idea of players coming back into market going through a quarantine period, which makes sense. And we've seen other leagues overseas kind of go through the same thing, including the Chinese Basketball Association. Uh, From there, they would be able to potentially go through practices uh, together as teams. From there, they would potentially, you know, progress towards you know, going to play at, at these, uh, you know, these single site venues, whether it's Orlando or Las Vegas or wherever else, um, where they would be able to then, 
you know, have some, you know, regular season games or tune-up games before the playoffs and then proceed towards the playoffs and and crowning a champion, which is ultimately uh, everyone's goal. And it sounds like the real game action would, uh, you know, really probably take place under this timeline sometime in July, which has really, you know, adds up with what the NBA's goal has been here over the last, you know, couple months in terms of, you know, penciling dates on the calendar. Um, so that's sort of how the framework would work. I think it would actually help manage some of the mental challenges of convincing players that this could be a safe environment, getting them acclimated to, to whatever the new procedures are. It would also, I think, very importantly, give the NBA a few opportunities to uh, have some outs, right? If you get into that you know, late June period and guys are practicing and all of a sudden there's numbers of players who are testing positive and it doesn't feel safe and, and everyone's concerns are raised, that would be the, the chance for the NBA to take a step back. And, and we've seen other leagues do that overseas too. So uh, I think that this gradual stage thing, it prevents it from being an all or nothing phenomenon, right? Um, it's not like, hey, you get there and you know, you're know you just, you're praying that you don't get the, the virus. And if you do, the whole thing is screwed. Um, you know, it, it allows them to kind of build into it. And I think from, from all of the proposals we've seen, I think that's probably my favorite part, because I do think that you need to kind of recondition both the players, but also the coaches and even the fan bases to this idea of like, hey, basketball could potentially be back. Yeah. And Chris Paul, the president of the Players Association, and then obviously plays for the Thunder, he said that the players would probably need a month and maybe a little bit more than a month to get back into shape and to get ready. And so this whole concept sort of works hand in hand. Well, the players get a month to sort of come back, like you said, get reacclimated to this. And then the league also gets a month of sort of testing, uh, both literally and and metaphorically testing, you know, to see if this would actually work, to see if, you know, there's all of a sudden a mass influx of positive tests to see if, you know, players will be able to, uh, you know, stay quarantined, things like that. They get this, this testing period and then they'll start, like you said, uh, the report from the athletic is that games could be playing by mid July, which is, uh, well, and that's an important point. The testing part needs to be worked out too, right? Because right. as we're seeing with, with the actual uh, coronavirus tests, I mean, the instant test uh, machines that the white house is using, apparently they have a pretty high, um, you know, error rate. Some of the, the saliva swab testing that they, people were getting excited about, maybe that's not quite as effective as, as people were hoping for. And so, you know, if you're giving these guys tests, um, you know, almost every single day or regularly, you want to get them going through that procedure, comfortable with it. You want to understand how long it takes to get the results back. What you really don't want is a situation like we saw in Oklahoma City, Nick, where you have one doctor running out onto the court trying to stop the game frantically (laughs) because everyone's caught off guard by a late-breaking positive test, right? You just can't have that visual again if you're the NBA. And so I do think that, again, this gradual... um, uh, this gradual uh, ramp up gives you the ability to, you know, get players used to being, you know, tested uh, for the virus, but also having their temperature checked and and getting used to their new routine. And and bottom line is, this isn't going to be fun for the players, right? Nobody likes to be poked and prodded and and having uh, you know medical professionals looking at you. You know, are you going to be a risk to your teammates and opponents? And you know, if they do wind up playing in Disney World in Las Vegas, they're probably going to be at least uh, for some period of time away from their family. Um, and potentially restricted in their activities. Uh, you know, hopefully it'll be a better life than what we've all been dealing with here in quarantine, kind of locked down at home and not able to go out, but it'll still be a lifestyle change. And, you know, for guys who have big mansions, you know, living in a hotel room is not going to be as nice as that for, you know, a couple month time period. So, 
whatever they can do to get these guys comfortable and, and mentally settled, I think is very important. Um, and it does seem like those kinds of considerations here are baked into the NBA's plan. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong. They're going to come back. The players will come back and be within their own teams to do these workouts, and so it's sort correct. of a, a smaller area too. You're not having you know multiple teams come in contact with each other. You're not having all the players in one you know hotel area. That's not they're not all coming into contact with each other. So it's smaller little pockets of of groups as well. It's not just you know a whole it, big exactly, group. Exactly right, and that's what I mean by it's almost like a test period. Let's see how it goes. If you can make it through three weeks with no positive tests and, and all the 30 teams are in their separate markets and everyone's feeling comfortable, then, hey, you can go forward and, and try to have the next step, and that would be great. But here's one challenge they do have, Nick. Not every jurisdiction is open for these guys to have their, their practices, right? There's still certain uh, cities and, and um uh, markets around the country that have not allowed teams uh, to reopen to their players. Now, it's not that many, uh, and they could be resolved here within the next few weeks. That's possible, but that is one potential hurdle here. A number of markets have reopened, uh, but not all 30. And the other thing is, in opening some of those markets, there were kind of deals struck almost between the teams and the local authorities where, okay, you can let guys in for uh, you know a one-on-zero workout, and, and maybe you have one coach wearing a mask and gloves who can work with that player, and, and that's going to be how uh, you know the, the local government deems it acceptable. The problem here is pretty soon, you know, uh, in the not too distant future, the plan would be for these guys to be able to go through practices. And that means having, you know, 10 players uh, or, or, you know, up to 15 players, I guess, per team, but also multiple coaches going through like full contact stuff, sweating on each other, definitely being within six feet, not socially distancing with each other. And that's where it really gets to be kind of challenging from a health perspective and also an ethical perspective, right? Because if you're the NBA, you need to be setting an example kind of for all of society. And a lot of people want sports back, but it does send a weird message to say, oh yeah, well, we're kind of special. Uh, we can have these guys go out there and, and not adhere to the, the social distancing best practices. We can have these guys all in an interior office-like environment where they're in close quarters with each other and potentially uh, you know, at a higher risk of contracting this virus than the average person. It's just a little bit of a double standard. And, uh, and we'll see how the NBA navigates that. You know, I imagine there's going to be people who have some serious problems about that side of things. Yeah, it's it's a I mean, there's so many different issues there's so many different problems. Um, and I think your your point about an ethical decision, I think is a good one. So coming up, let's get into the NBA's decision to come back and why they have to be so careful about all this. And then we'll get into a couple of, of you know, re- reactions about this news, what we think about it, how we think this is going to affect players and play and all that coming up. All right, Ben, your point earlier about how this is an ethical decision for the NBA, I think is an interesting one because I was even talking with uh, my two brother-in-laws about this. They're they're fairly casual NBA fans, but they point to the NBA canceling as one of the big turning points in our entire country for, you know, taking this whole coronavirus pandemic seriously because the NBA was one of the first major, you know, things that they care about that was stopped because of this and was affected because of this. And so the NBA coming back also, you know, I feel like has an obligation to, to do it right in a way. There's no question. I mean, it's a very highly visible league. Um, The, 
the types of superstars the NBA has, sometimes they feel almost like household members, right? Like we all just sat around and watched Michael Jordan and it was like, you know, watching this basketball god for the last five weeks that, you know, guys my age remember firsthand and, you know, maybe a younger audience is really kind of meeting for the first time. And it's just different than, you know, football players behind helmets or baseball players where they're, you know, the 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 rosters are so much bigger. Um, you know, it's just a different relationship the NBA has with American sports fans. So if, uh, they're definitely going to have a lot of people watching their every move. You know, in terms of the ethical side, I mean, you know, here, here's kind of the, the tricky dilemma that the NBA faces is Adam Silver came out and said, hey, this is this decision is going to come down to the data rather than the date. In other words, he's not trying to circle a specific day on the calendar to start things up. He wants to make sure that, uh, you know, the health and science data winds up being what informs their decision. And I think, unfortunately, like, you know, as a whole, as a country, we have not whipped this coronavirus thing, right? Like it's not as bad as it was, but it's still killing a lot of people. It's still a lot of new cases every single day. And a lot of the country is still under, you know, uh, restrictions in terms of what you're capable of doing. And so there's a little bit of a mixed message on that side. You know, what, what data is he, is he judging by? And there's another obvious data point separate from the health figures, which is, the NBA's financial figures, right? And that data says the NBA is in bad shape, you know, potentially losing billions of dollars if they can't get something back on television. Uh, players taking a massive financial hit, you know, they've already had to sacrifice a portion of their paychecks. And um, the longer that there's no basketball, the, the heavier the burden is going to fall on the players. And so I think that that's going to open up so another line of criticism for the NBA, which is going to be, are you guys really putting player safety first or are you putting profits first? Is is money driving this entire decision? And, you know, those kinds of questions will get louder and louder if there is another player who tests positive. And I think part of the tricky part for the NBA is a very high risk activity to spread this thing, right? What we know about it, indoor is worse than outdoor in terms of spreading. And then close contact is worse than social distancing. And there's just no way to play basketball, a five on five physical sport that's indoors, that's safe. It's just kind of impossible it goes against those two major principles right and you're not going to have you're not going to see guys out there with masks i can't imagine that um and you know we've already seen some politicians be criticized when they're not wearing masks right so that's going to open up a, an entire debate uh, in and of itself uh, potentially if these guys are back playing and then of course they already know that they can't play in front of fans and so it's going to create a different type of uh, just viewership environment as well so i see a lot of challenges here you know and and the nba to me they're being pretty aggressive with this timeline it's earlier than i would have expected i i'm not sure they've resolved some of the underlying questions that was potentially holding them back and, and causing them to delay this much already. And it's an ambitious plan. Um, you know, obviously I would love for basketball to be back personally for me, uh, because it would make my life easier. I love the sport and everything about it is, uh, you know, central in my life, but I'll, I'll be honest, Nick, I've got some real mixed feelings here, man. Uh, it's hard to jump up and down and be super excited about that. Realizing the very real health risk that's going to be involved in this idea that, we're all just supposed to accept the fact that these players, you know, are exposing themselves or, or increasing their risk to what has proven to be a very deadly disease. It's it's an interesting dilemma to be in. You would hope that for the NBA and for the players themselves, the league and the players, that the the league office with the players association would form a checks and balances to where if the league starts doing something that's dangerous to the players, that the players would would step up and say something, use their power as an you know as a union to come against that. You'd hope that kind of the, the opposite way for uh, for owners and things. 
but both sides are losing so much money in this that you just hope that that's not their worst enemy to where they decide to, you know, to grab the money and hopefully go for it too early, like you said, uh, and and not do this the right way. And it's a, it's a question for all of us. I mean, every single person to whether you uh, go back in your daily life, you keep social distancing. How long can we social distance? How long can your uh, business or wherever you work, how long can that last? There are certain companies that have said you know like twitter said that you can stay home forever like we can just keep operating the way that we are uh there's certain companies you have to come back you're an essential employee or your you know your job only works in in person and uh it's an it's a question an ethical i guess question for for every single person whether for sure you know, like we, we at the washington here. post for example we're you know the office for the washington post is basically closed through labor day you know it's it's still a work from home situation and that could extend longer um, but that's already multiple months past when the nba wants to kind of reopen things according to this plan so um, that's not like the you know the the standard that every company should be held to but there are a lot of companies like you're mentioning across various industries that have already decided that hey look summer's kind of off the table at this point and you're seeing a lot of other you know events um whether it's you know music events like here in los angeles i know the hollywood bowl is basically they're just not having anything this summer and that's actually outdoors um you're seeing like uh, the big three basketball league they've canceled for this summer so you're seeing other uh you know entertainment uh events and and opportunities basically shutting down in a way that the nba is kind of going the other direction and um again if something were to go wrong they're going to have to own that criticism right i mean there's there's kind of no hiding from it um so it's just another challenge another consideration for the league i mean what i will say is from the superstar players to adam silver to a number of the owners the desire to bring the sport back has always been strong here over these last couple of months. It's been reiterated time and time again. And, you know, that speaks to their competitiveness. It also speaks to their, uh, you know, their, their bottom line, of course. I mean, these are businesses and, and they need to be viewed as such, not just entertainment vehicles. Um, but I think that, you know, when we are stepping back and looking at this entire, uh, you know, dilemma, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, the players are people, and we should ask ourselves as as viewers, if we were a player, how would we want to be treated? Would we want to be sort of, quote unquote, forced to get back uh, on the job? If you're a media member, ask yourself, would you want to go necessarily and cover these playoffs in person if it's in Orlando or Las Vegas and, and potentially increase your risk uh, of, of contracting this illness? Uh, and these are tough, tough questions with no easy answer. And, you know, that's why... When I look at it, like I said, I've got real mixed feelings about this. Um, Nothing would get me more excited than watching the 2020 NBA playoffs, but nothing would sort of break my heart more than some very realistic worst case scenarios here where guys get the disease just like a Rudy Gobert or a Donovan Mitchell um, and the other, you know, team employees that got it along the way. And, you know, now we're, we're sitting here worried because one of them is facing a life or death situation. Right. Or if it tried to, or if they tried to start, you know, a little too early and then something like that happened and they had to stop right in the middle of it. I mean, that would just be, uh, you know, devastating in a different way. All right, coming up, let's, let's talk some, some actual, or I guess some, some metaphorical basketball, uh, and go to a little bit of a lighter note. We're doing some what ifs on the locked on NBA network. And so I wanted to, to pose a what if to Ben, that I thought was interesting, seeing as though we all just spent the last couple of weeks in the 90s with the Last Dance documentary. What if Michael Jordan had never played in the NBA at all? We'll get to that coming up. All right, Ben. We posed the question before the break. 
What if Michael Jordan had never played in the NBA? Now, this is not what it what you know. What would Michael Jordan do if he didn't play in the NBA? Maybe he plays baseball. Maybe he does something else. Maybe uh, he's Mike Jordan, right? He never be, he never actually became Michael Jordan. Uh, but whose career do you think it affects the most if if Jordan had never existed in the NBA? Well, before we get to the individual players, let's talk about the impact on the league itself, right? Because Jordan was so important, and we saw on that documentary time and time again how important he was to spreading the game globally and how important he was to hooking an entire generation of fans all over the world, right? So if we're talking about the NBA's massive economic growth and how much players are able to make and everything else today— you can undo a lot of that stuff. Now, that doesn't mean the NBA is going to be as small as it was in the early 80s, and maybe some of their finals games aren't even being televised on, uh, uh, you know, in real time and everything else. But the massive boost financially that we saw for the whole league during David Stern's tenure is not nearly as big without Michael Jordan. That's just a fact, right? Um, and a number of the companies that he was associated with, you know, probably more than any other, Nike or wouldn't look nearly the same uh, without him. Now, in terms of the players who would probably benefit from not having Michael Jordan, you got to start with the guys that he beat the most, right? And and that would be number one to me is Patrick Ewing. Uh, certainly, he's making the finals uh, on more occasions if Jordan's not in his way. He's winning a college title if Jordan's not uh, there, you know, hitting that jumper. And I think his reputation looks a lot different uh, than it does right now. And those Knicks probably wind up being sort of the signature team of the 90s in a way that they're, they're sort of that number two team uh, at this stage. The other guy who I think would really stand to benefit is Akeem Olajuwon. Now, he only won uh, only, quote unquote, <laughs> he only won two titles. And it was the years when Jordan was, um, you know, out playing uh, baseball. And he didn't make the finals any of the years that uh, Jordan uh, was sort of on the on the top of his uh, his game. I think he actually made the finals earlier in his career, if I'm not mistaken. But I think if he was the signature star of the 90s, and I think he probably would have been until Shaq came along, I just think that the league would have maybe revolved around him in a little different way. Maybe he's able to get more teammates going to sign up to play for him. And I just have a hard time believing if Jordan never comes along that Olajuwon only has two titles. I feel like he probably gets a couple more. And the fact that every time someone mentions Hakeem Olajuwon's name, you have to say he won two titles, but it was when Jordan wasn't playing, right? The butt goes away. Those two titles are more legitimized. It feels like we put an asterisk next to those. Uh, and some people even go and, to say... And we shouldn't. And we shouldn't. Right. He is incredible. But he, you're right. That is sort of the, the the interpretation of his career is like, well, he took advantage of Jordan's absence as opposed to this guy was just an all-timer, you know, arguably top 10 great in the history of the sport. And that's why his reputation would absolutely be burnished. There's no doubt. Him, would, he would have benefited a lot. I wonder how the Stockton-Malone duo would have fared. Uh, they go to two titles. Uh, but then do they do they win both? I guess maybe they do. If, if all of a sudden Carl Malone has two titles and he's second leading scorer all time, what does his you know legacy look like? There's no question those guys would be big time winners too. And throw Barkley in this mix as well because they definitely win in 93 for Barkley. So he doesn't have to endure 15 years <laughs> of jokes from Shaquille O'Neal on TNT. So he might be the biggest winner from a psychological and happiness perspective if, if you think about it. <laughs> who's, and who's, maybe he's he, already like one of the happiest people, so... 
Right. And well, actually, think about this. I mean, maybe he never feels like he needs to leave Philadelphia because, you know, part of the reason why he left Philly was they kept hitting the wall against Jordan. I think they lost twice to Jordan, I believe, in the second round in like five games. And so, you know, that kind of uh, precipitated his trade to Phoenix. So maybe Barkley winds up kind of owning the Eastern Conference in his own way for a while. And and he sneaks out even more than one title. But I think for sure Stockton and Malone uh, would get it done in a, at least once, uh, if not twice, in a Jordan-free environment. And it's so interesting because they kind of skimped over Stockton's greatness in The Last Dance. And to me, if you talk to other contemporaries of Stockton, like Barkley has called him a top five player he ever played against. Magic Johnson said, you know, Stockton is the type of guy you want your son to play like. Jason Kidd has said, look, it's Magic Johnson and John Stockton as the greatest of all time point guards. And we've even heard from Gary Payton, who said Stockton was harder for him to guard than Jordan, which is a real take. And I, you know, <laughs> respect the take, but it just tells you like that's the level of respect that he had from his um, contemporaries. So I don't think any individual player is stepping up and, and getting that kind of goat conversation um, title uh, from that era. But I do think a lot of the guys who are maybe overlooked now a little bit or underrated a little bit of now all would have benefited greatly. But I think that the single biggest winner of an NBA without Michael Jordan, isn't it LeBron? I mean, if LeBron comes along and he doesn't have this shadow of Jordan and the guys that he's chasing are either Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain, or I guess if you want to call them like more modest targets, like a Magic um, or a Larry or a Kobe, um, I think that LeBron winds up being viewed as the greatest player of all time, probably towards that end of that Miami era. Uh, and then, you know, by 2016, if he wins that title, uh, just in the same way, that probably cinches it up for him, right? I mean, he's certainly going to have a lot more of, of public rallying around his just incredible all-around abilities and his consistency and his longevity and everything else. And, uh, you know, so you take Jordan out of that equation. I think LeBron's the biggest winner. Yeah, it's incredible. It's it's incredible how when when Kobe was still playing, if you ever had a conversation about Jordan, Kobe was always brought up. And now whenever you have a conversation about Jordan, LeBron is always brought up because he's just he's right there at his doorstep. I mean, there's still a gap since Jordan actually did exist and in our, you know, fictional conversation he didn't, but uh, yeah, LeBron would, would be right there. I, one thing that sticks out to me from the last dance is that Jordan really wanted to win three straight because Magic and Bird never did it. And Kobe and Shaq actually got that done. And I wonder if that has more, even more weight. I mean, the three-peat is already you know an incredible feat, but because Kobe would have been, you know, Kobe and Shaq would have been the first to do it at that point. Uh, if we look at oh, Kobe sure. as you know, even, sure. even higher than he is now. No, it's a great point. Not only is LeBron a huge winner or maybe arguably the biggest winner, Kobe is a gigantic winner too, and Shaq as well, you know, because Shaq would have four rings at that point, and you could argue maybe even more. Um, and another guy who we shouldn't forget who always gets forgetting, forgotten uh, is Tim Duncan because he's got five. He did it the right way. He played forever. They built the ultimate winning franchise around him for like, you know, 18, 19 seasons, something like that. And if he never has to worry about being compared, like being called the boring guy compared to like Jordan's amazing charisma, uh, he winds up uh, as a big time winner in this whole, uh, in this whole hypothetical reality as well. So um, it tells you, man, it, it speaks a lot to Jordan's influence that we can name about 10 stars now, hall of fame level players across a 25 year time period who all would be remembered differently and remembered in a more favorable light, if not for one player. 
It's incredible. It's just the, the way that he, you know, pushed the NBA. And I, I think back to what you said earlier about how Jordan, you know, pro, like projected the league and he, he pushed the league forward in so many different ways that, you know, Magic and Bird, some people say that they saved the NBA and Jordan really, you know, sent it to a completely different stratosphere. Just his, his influence on that, his influence on Nike, how, you know, we mentioned in the last dance how Nike was this smaller company and Jordan didn't even really consider them at first, but his mom made him you know, go to that meeting. And uh, what happens if he doesn't do that? They don't make a ton of money off Air Jordan. What happens to the, to the sneaker industry? Do are, do signature shoes even happen because Jordan was so, you know, successful in his? Do they, you know, does anybody continue to do that? Or does somebody become the next Air Jordan? Like, does Kobe become Air Jordan that way? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, we should also underscore Magic here. I mean, if no Michael comes along, Magic wins again in 91. Mm. So that gives him six. I mean, that's a pretty high bar for anybody, even LeBron, to try to match, right? And, you know, you don't know. You you can't undo his health situation. But let's imagine Magic never had to retire because of his health. If he has great health and Jordan never comes along, how many does he win? Does he get up to seven? Is Is eight possible? I mean, he was... A very, very, very good player in that last finals, that 91 finals. I mean, a super high-level guy. Jordan was better, but Magic was still excellent. Um, Here's a what-if for you. Um, If there's no Jordan, do the Bulls ever win one? Does Scottie Pippen ever get them to a title? I'm inclined to say no, man. What do you say? Yeah, it's it's hard to see. The the names that we're bringing up just seem to be on a little bit of a higher plane, but we never really saw Scottie Pippen, besides those, those two years, I guess, that, that Jordan was out, uh, we never saw Scottie Pippen fully embrace as the, the number one. And so even though we got those two years, I guess, that would be the, you know, what we have to compare it to. I guess not. Like, I guess he wouldn't, but he would be the best player in, in Bulls history if his career kind of pulls out the, the same way. Um, and then, well, and that's that's another layer to this is is Scotty the same guy without Michael pushing him in early in his career, or is he the or same guy? Yeah, if he if he doesn't get the opportunity to not have to be the lead scorer all the time, right? I mean, his role just would have been completely different. His game probably looks different. Uh, who knows what he kind of turns out to to look like? It's it's kind of an unanswerable question. I just think that you know if you've got that powerhouse Knicks team, uh, you know if you've got the Pacers to deal with, if you've got the Heat to deal with. And Scotty just doesn't have quite the right help around him. You know, you're probably not actually luring Rodman in '96, right? Right. Um, so if Scotty and Tony Kukoc can't get along, like we know they didn't really get along, and those are kind of your two best players, um, you know, what's the ceiling on that kind of a team? I mean, it's these are tough questions for him to answer, and I feel bad because he kind of got buried at times during this documentary with the the migraine and the, and the sit down in in '94, um, and of course the back problems that he had in '98. I mean, I think a lot of Scotty's worst moments. In his career or his his toughest moments got an awful lot of attention in this documentary where some of his best moments maybe got a little bit shorter shrift and i kind of felt bad for him here at the same time if, if you're saying does he does he win a title as a number one guy in the nba without jordan uh to me i have a hard time seeing that and then there's this whole other so many avenues we could go down i mean we could just keep talking about this forever but what does that mean for phil jackson does phil jackson ever win he probably i mean doesn't win six with Jordan, then does he become the Lakers coach? Do the Lakers even know who Phil Jackson is besides the fact that you know he was a player? Well, yeah. I mean, well, rewind it all the way back. Does he ever get a head coaching job, or when does it come, right? Because the reason why they brought him in was Doug Collins was catering too much to Michael Jordan, right? Well, and you felt the pressure as an organization to get over the hump because Jordan needs to win one, right? So let's say you know Doug Collins is the Bulls coach, but he doesn't have Michael Jordan. Well, 
what does that team even look like? Does he get an extra couple, three, four years because they don't have to worry about trying to get over the hump, right? There's no shame in losing to the bad boys Pistons if you don't have Jordan. So, you know, what's the pressure uh, to even put Phil Jackson into that spot in the first place? So that's a crazy what if for sure, because he just had such an unusual journey to becoming a coach, right? It wasn't like he was groomed forever to be this like legendary basketball coach. I mean, as they described in the documentary, his first interview for, uh, you know, assistant coaching job, he basically bombed because he looked like a hippie and didn't take it seriously enough. Right. So it's like, uh, not everybody gets that second chance uh, in those environments. And that's an absolutely great part of the what if no doubt. It's a, and there's so many different avenues we could take this down. We could probably do this for a whole week, but, uh, Ben, thanks so much for, uh, for sticking with us every single week. And, uh, we'll be back. Oh, by the way, we just had a whole conversation about Stockton Malone and David Locke was not here. I mean, he's having some FOMO, I think right now <laughs> thinking that, well, that's fine. I, you know, it's a little <laughs> shout out to him, but look, bottom line is Stockton needs to get his respect. And I, I thought the, the last dance sold him short. Just, just a little, just him sitting there in that dark arena or that dark gym was just kind of, I mean, it was a little uh, metaphorical in a sense. Well, it was a little hostage video too, right? Yeah, I mean, right. like Carl Malone didn't want to do it. Brian Russell didn't do it. You know, unfortunately, because Jerry Sloan's health, he wasn't able to do it. So I guess Stockton took that one for the team. But I loved his line. How great was it? Oh, I didn't think that the Michael Jordan and the Bulls had any aura about them. If I ever thought that, how would I play against him? You've got all these other guys. Reggie's calling him Black Jesus. You know, all these other yeah. guys talking about his teammates were afraid of him. And here's Stockton saying, oh, yeah, 23. He was just another guy. <laughs> I love it. I mean, that, that competitive spirit is what made him special. And I think ultimately what would have gotten him a title, at least one, in this hypothetical world that we're talking about. Absolutely. There you go. Guys, keep listening to to Locked On NBA. We appreciate you. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. You can listen to me every single day on Locked On Mavericks. Guys, thanks so much for listening to Locked On NBA.